If you are visiting with us this morning, then as Jesse said, thank you so much for coming. We are honoured to have you here as our guests out of all the things you could be doing on Easter Sunday, particularly in Australia where it's actually hot as opposed to Wales where it's snowing. There are things that you can actually do, but we're honoured to have you here as our guests. And I'd be grateful if you'd all turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 15. If you are visiting and you don't have a Bible, that's no dramas. There are some spare ones on the back there. But also you can just listen in as I read it in a moment. Mark chapter 15 is where we're going to spend our time as a local church. There is quite simply no topic that I'm more passionate about speaking to you all about than today's topic, than the cross, than Jesus Christ and him crucified. The cross is without question the central point of the Bible. And the cross is the central point of time. All things in the Bible point us towards the cross. Then we have the Gospels, which are the cross, Christ and Him crucified. And then we have the letters and all that comes after it, which all point us back to the cross. In the letters, then, we are called to keep the main thing the main thing. We're called to keep the Gospel the main thing. The Apostle Paul himself said to the Corinthians, he said, I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. And as an example of that then, the Apostle Paul said to them that he resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. The Apostle Paul was passionate about the gospel and passionate about keeping the gospel the main thing. The Ephesians church then, a church that Paul himself planted and spent three years declaring the glories of Calvary too, he he leaves them and he writes a letter to them. And he spends half the letter talking to them about Calvary, about the glories of the gospel yet again. To Timothy, his son in the faith, Paul says, Of this gospel, I was appointed a herald, an apostle and teacher. And so he said to young Timothy, Timothy, guard the good deposit. Guard the gospel. Keep the gospel the main thing in all you do as I pass on these churches to you in all that I do. Keep the gospel central. And so as we come to the gospel this morning, as we come to Christ and Him crucified, there is, there is no topic that would, I would rather address you on as the church I love the most than this topic, Christ and Him crucified. And yet there is also no more topic that I feel more inadequate about proclaiming to you than Christ and Him crucified. Because this is full on. This is where it all happened. This, this is Calvary. Charles Spurgeon, one of my historical heroes, says this subject is worthy of an angel's tongue. It needs Christ himself completely to expound it. Would God then, by his spirit, expound it to our hearts? I think he's right. This, this subject is worthy of an angel's tongue. And yet in the mystery of, of divine grace... You do not have an angel before you today. You have a redeemed sinner, just like you, that God has entrusted the gospel to proclaim. It would be need Christ himself completely to expound the gospel. And so my prayer, like Mr. Spurgeon, is that by his spirit then, he would expound it to our hearts. So let's pray before we dive into this together. Well, Lord, we've gathered around Calvary in singing. And now we gather around Calvary in view 
and in your word. Lord, would this moment, although familiar with us, would it not be trivial with us? Would it not be over-familiar? Lord, you can never be passionate about something that you take for granted. And so, Lord, as we behold Calvary, would we not take you for granted? But would we be freshly amazed, freshly in awe of all that you've done on the cross in our place? So, Lord, would you expound these truths to our hearts today? Would you open our eyes to the glories of the gospel? And would we all leave today, whether we be believers or unbelievers, would we all leave seeing that you truly are the Son of God and that that changes everything? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read chapter 15 from verse 16 through to the end of verse 39. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel... Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, 
Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. As we consider this passage today, and as I've studied this passage this week, I, I think the words of Sherlock Holmes to his loyal friend Dr. Watson are oddly relevant for us all. See, at one point, Sherlock Holmes was discussing with Dr. Watson about the crime scene they'd been looking at. And he said, Dr. Watson, you see, but you do not observe. You see it, but you don't observe. You don't really see what is really going on here. And I think, I think that's oddly familiar and oddly relevant for us all because I think that is exactly what we can do when it comes to this passage of Scripture. We can see it, and yet we don't really observe. A casual reading of that Scripture, we will observe very little. But when we pause and when we linger when we refuse to make the mistake of just seeing but beholding and observing, this scripture wields some incredible, incredible truth to our hearts. You see, Mark's main points, unless I'm mistaken, are not immediately obvious, are they? It's, it's hard to work out, well, what, what are his points? What, what does he want us to get? What does he want us to see? That, that is odd. And Mark's description of the crucifixion in particular, at first glance, is most unusual. I mean, did you notice? Did you observe? Did you see what he said, how little he makes of Jesus Christ's suffering? Did you notice? Look again at verse 24. This is the central point in all of history and all of the Bible. And Mark gives it four words. And they crucified him. Mark. Why the lack of detail? Is that it? Why not a few paragraphs? Why, why not more? Why not a chapter? On this being the central point in all of Scripture, why not give us more? Why not tell us more about the Savior's physical suffering? Given the horror and significance of this event, why do we not have more? See, in this fine commentary on the Gospel of Mark, William Lane writes as follows. He says, Death by crucifixion was one of the cruelest and most degrading forms of punishment ever conceived by human perversity, even in the eyes of the pagan world. It went on to be banned not that long after Christ because people knew that this was just the height of cruelty. For to die on a cross was indeed R-rated. It was violent, it was torturous, it was aggressive in nature. The Jewish historian Josephus simply said crucifixion was the most wretched of all ways of dying. It was the most wretched ways of all ways of dying. It was the height of human perversity, even in the eyes of the pagan world. And yet Mark, in this moment, just gives it four words. And they crucified him. Why? Why does he not give us more? Well, please don't misunderstand 
Mark is not in any way seeking to belittle the physical suffering of the Saviour. He's not seeking to minimise what the Saviour has gone through in a physical sense. And yet Mark unashamedly wants us as the readers to see way beyond the obvious. Not just to see that which is obvious, he wants his readers to observe that which is concealed. That which he speaks far more about in this text. You see, there is an obvious reality in this text. And the obvious reality is verse 24. And they crucified him. But there is also a concealed reality of Calvary. The glories of Calvary. There is information in here that Mark wants us to see so that we may be lost in wonder and awe of the Saviour. So that we may hit our knees and stand before him compelled with amazement in all he is and all that he has done. See, the emphasis and the focus of this passage which you have before you today is nothing to do with what happened. This whole text is to do with why it mattered. What happened? And they crucified him. But all the other verses begin to unpack for us why it mattered. He wants us to see why. And so throughout this text, he talks to us about three things in particular. Number one, the uniqueness of the one who was crucified. He wants us to see in all reality who Jesus really is. Number two, he wants us to see why he was crucified. And then number three, how we are to respond to this one who was crucified. Mark is not that interested in this moment with what happened. Mark is all about why it mattered. And so you want to know what the three points are? How he splits it up? Behold, there are three distinct waves of voices in this text. And they are the points. There are three waves in particular of voices and each wave answers for us something unique about Jesus. Something unique about why he died and something unique about how we are to respond. So let's start where he responds. Let's start with where he begins. He begins with <coughs> a most unexpected group of voices. Because behold, in verse 16, the verses that he begins with are number one, the voices of the Saviour's enemies. The voices of his mockers. The voices of his abusers. Verses 16 through 20 and 24b, we see the cruel mockery of the soldiers. In verse 29, we see the mockery of those passing by. Those who are just passing by Jesus on the cross and are mocking him and hurling insults at him and wagging their heads as if to say, you loser. Verse 31, we see the mockery of the chief priests and the scribes. And in verse 32, we see the mockery of the two men crucified with Jesus. The two men that at this point completely reviled him. See, this is a really diverse group of people. This is a really diverse group of individuals that we see here <coughs> in this opening section. But they are united around one thing. They are united around the mockery of the Saviour. And yet in absolute genius, what they do not realise and what is unknown to those enemies is God is turning their mocking and using their mocking 
to indicate to us now three profound truths about Jesus Christ. Because each time they mock, the very thing they mock is a profound truth. This is, in effect, what I believe to be called revelational irony. Mark is is basically looking us in the eyes and saying, isn't it ironic? They're using these things to mock him. But behold, they are true. And then he brings them into Scripture to show us the uniqueness of the one that they are crucifying. One writer simply describes this section as the gospel according to Jesus' enemies. It is. Behold the mockers and behold how the King of Kings is using them to proclaim profound and incredible truths about our Savior and King. Look at this. Number one, they mocked him as the King of the Jews. Verse 18 and verse 26. They declare him and they mock him as King of the Jews. Before them on that day, as they stood mocking him, Jesus Christ appeared to be anything but a king. Jesus Christ appeared to them to be powerless, to be weak, to be helpless, to be humiliated. In this moment, he was nothing like a king as far as they were concerned. This isn't one who is powerful. This isn't one who is reigning. This is one who is weak who is being humiliated. This is one who is simply helpless. He was in no way a triumphant and powerful ruler as they would be expecting a king to be. And so they mock him. Hail, king of the Jews. For this is surely no king. So hail him, mock him. Mock him as king of the Jews. He was no king. Or was he? Mark wants us to not only see, he wants us to observe. Was he not the king of the Jews? How ironic. He was the king of the Jews. Their mockery was disclosing a profound truth. This was indeed a king from another realm. For in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This was the king that everybody had been waiting for. He was without doubt about to receive a triumph. He was without doubt about to reign. But that triumph and that reign would not come through human endeavor. That triumph and that reign would come through the humiliation of the cross. The cross he's hanging on. The cross where above his head they placarded the king of the Jews. (coughs) The cross where they stand in front of and cry out, Hail the King of the Jews. How ironic. It's true. This was the King of the Jews. (coughs) Not only the King of the Jews, but the King of all. They thought they were mocking him in this moment. And yet in actual fact, (coughs) excuse me, in actual fact, they're taking part in his coronation. <clears throat> as they hail him as the king, they're telling the truth. This was indeed the king of all. <clears throat> so it isn't ironic that the very thing that they declare 
is the truth. This was the king. Verse 29, they mock him as the temple. It says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. You know, the roots of this mockery have their home in Mark chapter 14 and John chapter 2, where Jesus himself talks of his body as the temple, a temple that would be destroyed and then raised back up in just three days. Time doesn't permit me to develop the background fully of what Jesus is doing here and saying. But one thing that is very clear is when Jesus says he's the temple, he is declaring profound truths. For the temple was the place where God dwelt and where God in all his glory was revealed and known. The temple was a meeting place between God and man. And the temple is the place where sin could be atoned for through the blood sacrifice of another. And so they declare him. Check him out. The temple. The one who said that he could be defeated. And then in three days he would rise it up again. They mock him. But how ironic. Jesus is the temple that they mock. For this is him. It is in Jesus that the fullness of God would be revealed. It is in Jesus that the fullness of God would be made known. And it is through Jesus, as the true sacrificial lamb, that full access to God would be made possible for all. And so they mock him. Hail the King of the Jews. True. He is the King of the Jews. They mock him. Look at him. The temple. Yeah. And he's never been more of a temple in all of his life. As he dies upon the cross, he is dying as the perfect sacrifice of the Lamb so that access through the curtain could be made known for all of us who would put their faith in Jesus. And then in verses 30 and 31, they mock him as God's appointed Savior. For if you are God's Savior, if you are the appointed Messiah, then come down. If you are him... Then get down. Show us. Prove to us that you are the Almighty by getting off the cross. Huh. You're not going to, are you? So the scribes and the Pharisees, they gather around and they start to mock, for he saved others. Look, he can't save himself. He claims to have saved other people. But he can't claim, he can't save himself. What scorn and what mockery is revealed and lambasted upon the Saviour at this point. And yet, what sweet irony. For this is profound truth. For yes, he can save others. And because of that, he cannot save himself. True. You mean it to mock him? God means it to issue profound truth for all that would listen on afterwards. Donald English says, what they taunt him for not doing, saving himself, is precisely so because he is doing what they ridicule, namely, saving others. For he could not do both. Leon Morris, listen. Don't just see but observe. Leon Morris says, They said they would have believed that he was the Son of God 
had He come down from the cross. And yet we believe He was the Son of God because He stayed up. My friends, to save others, He could not save Himself. To save others, He must stay up. To save others, He must remain there. My friends, aren't you glad He stayed? Aren't you glad He remained? For they mock Him. And yet they are actually revealing a profound truth. It wasn't the nails that held Him there. He could have called myriads upon myriads of angels to remove Him from that cross in a moment. It was not the nails that kept Him on the cross. It was love for the divine will of the Father and pleasing the Father and love and passion for you. That's what held Him there. So they mock Him. In order to save others, you can't save yourself. How ironic. That's true. They are declaring in their mockery Profound truths. God uses the voices of the Savior's enemies to declare in this text the glory and uniqueness of the one being crucified. Isn't that wonderful? Don't you love it? The way God in his rich tapestry of genius uses the voices of mockers and turns it and says, yeah, that's all true. The very people that are mocking him as king are playing a part in this moment, in the king's coronation. Then, as their voices subside, having established for us the glory and uniqueness of the one being crucified, there is then only one voice we hear, a far greater voice, a voice that discloses to us why the Saviour must die. And that is the Saviour's voice himself. Number two, the voice of the Saviour. See, we are informed in this text that at noon, a great darkness came over the land. We are informed that that darkness remains there for the next three hours. And there is, in effect then, an, an atmospheric confirmation pointing us atmospherically to what is actually taking place right here at Calvary on this moment. Namely, Jesus Christ is being judged in this moment For our sin, he is becoming a sin bearer for us right now and God is pouring out his righteous wrath that you deserved on his son. At this moment, Jesus Christ is being wounded for our transgressions. In this moment of complete darkness, Jesus Christ is being crushed for our iniquities. For all like sheep, we've got astray. All, each one to his own way. But in this moment, God, in divine wrath, is laying on his Son the iniquity of us all. Now, up until now, the Savior's barely said anything. As soon as you read the text, you realize he, he said so very little. He does not resist or protest when he is arrested, he does not resist or protest when he is falsely accused. <coughs> He does not resist or protest when he is beaten and crucified and mocked. He says nothing throughout that whole time. But in this moment, he can remain quiet and silent no longer. You see, at this moment, at this moment, the Savior is suffering. A suffering that is unimaginable, 
overwhelming, indescribable. In this moment, the Savior is suffering a suffering of horrific proportions. And therefore, in deep pain and profound anguish, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry of anguish. He knows the answer. But after three hours of taking on the consuming wrath of God, he is coming to the end of himself. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? And as we hit these words, my friends, we are, we are on holy ground. See, if there is ever a moment in Scripture where we need to ensure that we observe and not just see, then surely this is it. For this should not just be brushed over as if, yeah, got it, registered, thanks. If that's our response, then we haven't got it at all. We haven't understood at all what is going on here. For this is a cry of horrific nature. And so it's vital that we slow and understand and observe what's going on there. Helped by C.J. Mahaney, here's some quotes for you. Richard Allen Bodie says this about this moment. He says, The Bible has its corridors of mystery that refuse to yield their secrets to anyone, even the most brilliant theologians. But nowhere in all of the Bible... Do we encounter any mystery that so staggers the mind and shocks the Christian consciousness than this tortured cry from the lips of our dying Saviour? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This awesome, haunting protest screamed into the darkened heavens brings us to the heart of the atonement. Wayne Gruden then continues, Jesus, in his human nature, knew he would have to bear our sins, to suffer and to die. Listen. But in his human consciousness, he probably did not know how long this suffering would take. To bear the guilt of millions of sins, even for a moment, would cause the greatest anguish of souls. To face the deep and furious wrath of an infinite God even for an instant, would cause the most profound fear. But Jesus' suffering was not over in a minute, or two, or ten. When would it end? Could there be yet more weight of sin? Yet more of the wrath of God to come? Hour after hour, it went on. The dark weight of sin and the deep wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus Christ, wave after wave. And so Jesus cries out. He could barely take it any longer. And in anguish and pain, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lord, how much longer? Lord, is it nearly done? I don't know how much more I can take. Do you see? 
We're not meant to just see, we're meant to observe. This is a cry of desperation. There's no better summation of this cry, I think, than that of Mr. Sproul. He says, This cry represents the most agonizing protest ever uttered on this planet. It bursts forth in a moment of unparalleled pain. It is the scream of the damned. As Jesus Christ hangs upon a cross, he is overwhelmed. That which he had seen coming in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he looked into the cup of wrath and he became overwhelmed as he cried out to God then too. He now drinks the cup of wrath on the cross and he is overwhelmed. And yet he remains there. Why? For you and for me. That's the only reason. He could have had a myriad of angels get him in a moment. But he remained there because of love for the Father and love for you. For all like sheep have gone astray. That's, that's us. And yet Jesus Christ on the cross became sin for us. He took our iniquities. He took on our sin. He became our sin bearer. And God then laid upon him the wrath of God that we deserved, Jesus Christ took it in our place. And when he can barely take it no longer, he just cries out, Lord, are we nearly done? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, folks, if your understanding of the cross is merely physical suffering, you need to understand Mark only gives Four words to that. And they crucified him. The cross is far more than physical suffering. And the object of attention when it comes to the crucifixion is not physical suffering. It is, it is emotional suffering. It is relational suffering. Thousands of people were crucified. Although it is a horrific thing to have done to you, thousands of people were killed that way. But only one was cut off from God for you. Only one took on the wrath of God in your place. Only one drank the cup of wrath that you deserved and became cut off from the Heavenly Father for you. And His name was Jesus. C.J. Mahaney says it this way. He says, The scream of the damned was for us. The scream of the damned was for sinners like you and me. Why this scream? Why this resolve to satisfy God's wrath as our substitute for our sin? Here's why. To secure our forgiveness. He was forsaken so that we might be forgiven. He was forsaken so that we might never be forsaken. He was forsaken so that we might be fully assured that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? The scream, it came for you and me. What a saviour. What a saviour. It was my sin that held him there, not the nails. And as the scream of the damned comes forth, as he, in great anguish and pain, takes on our sin, 
he remains there nonetheless. One who had never been forsaken by the Father. One who throughout his whole troubles, throughout all of his suffering, always had one who he could rely on. God the Father who was always with him. But not in this moment. In this moment, he receives utter aloneness. The crowd mock. No one cares. And the Father, who he has dwelt with in perfect unity up until this point, turns his face away and then begins to pour out a wrath that we can barely even imagine on his Son in our place. What a Savior, eh? We shouldn't just see. We need to observe. We need to behold. Because that affects everything. And then finally, in closing, there comes one more voice. One more voice that Mark wants us to understand. And that is the voice of the centurion. See, this is a most unexpected voice. This is a surprising voice for us to hear. In effect, we have heard his voice already in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace... And they called together a whole battalion. The centurion's voice would have been in that mix. But this was one of the leaders of the battalion. One of the leaders that would have been clothing Jesus in the purple robe. One of the leaders that would have been leading the ranks in spitting on him and mocking him and beating him. And yet now, since he has stood facing Jesus in his death, An incredible thing has taken place. His blindness has been removed and he beholds Jesus. And in verse 39 then he says this, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Just a few hours earlier, he has been beating Jesus, mocking Jesus. But now, he beholds Jesus, realizing this is him. Surely this is him. This is the Son of God. This is the one we've all been waiting for. He beholds the death of the Savior, and he responds in faith. Folks, if you're here today and you're not a Christian... And as I said at the start, thank you so much for coming. We are, we are honoured that you would choose to be with us today. And you need to understand that this third voice, verse 39, this voice of the centurion is deliberately there for you. Mark has deliberately placed this response there for you to see how you are called to respond. And through this third voice then there is a question for you. And I think that question is simply this. How will you respond then, having now beheld the death of the Saviour? The centurion beholds the death of the Saviour and he responds in faith. Well, you've beheld the death of the Saviour now. In his word. How will you respond? What are you going to do? See, the gospel starts with bad news. It starts with real bad news. And the whole premise of where we begin is God making mankind, which is glorious, that is good, and God making mankind to be with him, 
to find our identity and our purpose and our joy and our belonging in Him and with Him. That's glorious. But by Genesis chapter 3, mankind has failed. (coughs) By Genesis chapter 3, mankind has exchanged the Creator for the created. We've decided to reject God and just run with what He's made for us. We'll be alright, thanks. We're going to try here. Sin comes into the world, but then so does its consequences. We are now, because of our sin, because of our rejection of God, objects of His righteous wrath. It's the way it is. God is a holy judge of all. He made us to be with Him and find our joy and identity in Him, but we rejected Him. All like sheep have gone astray. We rejected everything He stood for. And because of that, in His holiness and our sinfulness, we are objects of His wrath. And the Bible says two things. It says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And it also says that man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment. You may not like that. I'm just a messenger. This isn't my musings. This isn't my, you know, okay, my preferences. Here, have some of this. It's what it says. This is His word. But the same word also tells us that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. See, this Bible also talks to us about the greatest rescue mission ever told. The truth how God took on flesh and bone and sinew and tissue and then lived a perfect life in your place, the life that you could never live and then died upon a cross being forsaken by God so that you through faith could be accepted. That's the good news of the gospel. The truth that you can never do enough, but the truth that Jesus Christ has indeed done enough. And so all it leaves us with in verse 39 is what is your response going to be? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that whoever would believe in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, folks, Christianity, I think, sometimes gets a bad rep because it can appear that Christianity is all about what we can do for Jesus, all about what we can do for Him. So Christianity is all about reading your Bible and, and praying and going to church and doing all these things. But that is not what Christianity is primarily about. Christianity is not primarily about what we can do for Jesus. Christianity is all about what Jesus Christ did for us. Christianity has nothing to do with earning our way into heaven. Christianity is all about realizing, I can never do enough. I can never make it. But Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, who hung on a cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has done enough for me. He took on the wrath of God in my place so that I would never have to. That is scandalous grace. It is scandalous grace. So does it matter then whether I read my Bible and pray and and give and go to church? Oh, they're important. They're part of Christianity. They're part of experiencing His grace. But is my salvation based on any of those things? They're nothing to do with those things. When I walk into the heavenly gates, I'll not be saying, check it out, I read my Bible. I mean, as a pastor, I did well. I'll be saying, you know what? I am here on one thing and one thing alone. Jesus Christ, your son, died in my place. That's all I got. 
And in that moment, he will say, welcome home, son. Because it was never about what I could do for Jesus. Never about what you could do for Jesus. It's all about what he has done for you. And what he has done for you then requires a response. You can either reject him. Many did. Or you stand like the centurion did. And you put your faith in him, realizing this surely is the Son of God. Romans says, For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Paul says it in Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. That's the way of salvation. You confess him as your king believing that this truly is the Son of God and you believe in your heart that he died and rose again for you. That's what it is to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, as your King and Saviour. And the Bible is clear that when you do that, then you are saved. So folks, if you're not a Christian, as verse 39 finishes our time, The simple question is, what then are you going to do? Who do you say is? According to the Bible, your very eternity rests on that response. Folks, I trust that by God's grace we have seen, as we view Calvary, a situation that we are not just to see, but that we are truly to observe. And I trust that we have observed it like Mark would have hoped for. For Jesus, the crucified one, truly is gloriously unique. He's not just another guy. He's the temple. He's the king. He's the savior. Declared by his mockers. He then died in agony physically, but more importantly, agony relationally, as the father turned his face away, as the father poured out his righteous wrath that you had earned, on his son, in your place. He died for you. And so would our response then, our genuine wholehearted response, be faith and would life and life in his name then, that which is promised all the way through the book of John, be our story. Let's pray. Lord, when we come to Calvary, we we truly are on holy ground. Lord, I pray that this message would not just be here in a moment and soon forgotten, but would it encourage us to delve ever more deeply into the glories of Calvary. Lord, for all those that don't know you as Lord and Saviour, I pray that that they would know you as Lord and Saviour. Lord, would you open their eyes to the truth of who you are and what you have done, would you open their eyes to the truth of the glorious invitation that sits on their laps. And Lord, give them grace to respond that they would put their faith in you and know then the truth of what it is to be saved. And Lord, for the rest of us that already know you as Saviour, Lord, thank you. Lord, would we never tire of saying thank you for all that you have done. Lord, I cannot wait until we stand around your throne for all eternity and cry out, thank you. 
Lord, would we not just see, but would we observe? And would all glory then, all glory, go to you. In Jesus' name, amen.